Greetings to our global neighbors and all the ships at sea. From coast to coast, border to border, this is Message Traffic from Washington, D.C., presented by the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs. February 1st, Burma's military leadership seized power from the civilian-led government in a coup, plunging the Southeast Asian nation into a political crisis, only a decade after the end of almost 50 years of strict and brutal military rule. In this seizure of power, the senior military officers arrested the civilian government leadership, including Nobel laureate and Burmese president Aung San Suu Kyi. The arrest of Aung San Suu Kyi and the coup triggered weeks of protests nationwide. Security forces have cracked down on those demonstrations by opening fire on unarmed protesters and killing dozens of people across the country and the injury of hundreds. The U.S., the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand, and the EU have all enacted sanctions on the country's generals while China has expressed concern, saying that, quote, the current developments in Myanmar is absolutely not what China wants to see, unquote. On this episode of Message Traffic, we interview Olivia Enos, a senior analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Ms. Enos specializes in national security and human rights in Asia. Recently, she wrote an article called How the U.S. Should Respond to the Coup in Burma. In this interview, we discuss how Burma was able to fall to the military leadership, the identity conflict of Aung San Suu Kyi in dealing with the Rohingya question, and what the future holds for this Asian country teetering on democracy or autocratic military rule. Here is our discussion. Olivia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Olivia, let, let's kind of, you know, as as we talk about the situation in in Burma, uh, Myanmar. Now, now, before we get started, I have to ask this question: Is the preference Burma or Myanmar? So at Heritage, we call it Burma because that's what the State Department calls it. That's what the U.S. government calls it. Um, And so that's what we call it. But it's called Myanmar um, by many people because that's what the military junta decided they wanted the country to be called um, when they made transitions historically. So we at Heritage continue to call it Burma. (laughs) Uh, As do we here at the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs. So that, I guess, would be the correct answer uh, that we would accept (laughs) from our judges. So that's fantastic. Um, Let's talk about Burma. Uh, The elections that took place in November, uh, and then, of course, the subsequent detention and arrest of pretty much most of the civilian government, including uh, President Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, Tell me, what was the 
issues leading up to the November election that would cause the military to take the action it did earlier this year? Well, I think there can be no question that the Burmese military really thwarted the will of the Burmese people uh, by carrying out the coup as they did on February 1st. And, you know, some of this has to do with the fact that the National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, um, you know, actually won a landslide victory um, after having been in power for the last five years. And there's long been a tension in Burma between the civilian um, and the military government just due to the nature of the construction of the 2008 constitution. And, you know, just for for memory's sake, the 2008 constitution was um, drafted principally by the Burmese military. And so what it did was it granted the Burmese military authority over really key power structures, including um, the very powerful minister, uh, Ministry of Interior and Border Affairs, um, and a lot of the internal matters. And beyond that, the constitution um, made it so that the Burmese military has uh, a very high percentage, um, one quarter of the seats in parliament, which gives them the ability to block any attempts at major reforms, particularly constitutional reforms. And so I think that the military just decided that they wanted to to take power at this point um, to exert their influence and, and have it be unquestionable. So when we look at the the 2008, uh, I, I guess you could call it constitutional document, and you talk about the requirement of 75% of the seats need, or, or the parliamentary votes needed to pass legislation. Uh, there were a certain amount of seats reserved for the military, giving them de facto uh, oversight over their own operation. Um, it, has that been a concern? throughout the region and throughout uh, the global diplomatic community as far as the military has always had too big of a hand in the way that government was run in Burma? Yes, definitely. I think that, you know, the the 2008 constitution in and of itself was almost a non-starter because it was written in such a way that it continued to grant the military massive amounts of authority that make it so that the civilian government really never had the ability to take the reins and to direct the country. And so any leader, whether it was Aung San Suu Kyi or somebody else, was going to have to um, really carry out a delicate balance um, when it came to governing the country. And so when the U.S. or, or other um, outside actors attempted to help with, say, the peace process, um, they were consistently hitting up against challenges from the military. And no challenge, um, of course, was you know quite as big as the atrocities that the Burmese military carried out against the Muslim minority in the country, the Rohingya. Um, in August 2017 that, you know, many people, including the United Nations, consider to be genocide and crimes against humanity. Right. But let's talk about the Rohingya crisis for a second, because, I, you know, I think you can't talk about the Rohingya crisis without mentioning uh, President Suu Kyi. But at the same time, when we look at that situation, 
you know, the, 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 the Burmese government has consistently ignored the Muslim minority group. They have not ex acknowledged them as citizens, uh, in, including in their own 2014 census. Um, they see them as illegal immigrants from Bangladesh, according to the BBC. But this is also happening during a time when Aung Suu Kyi, Nobel Peace Prize winner for human rights activism, almost turned a blind eye to the Rohingya. Is is the Rohingya question? Does it lie at the feet of Aung Suu Kyi, or does it? Uh, is is was she handcuffed by the military and the populace in Burma? I think there's no question that there was more that Aung San Suu Kyi could have done to respond to the Rohingya crisis, even though it would not be politically expedient for her to do so. Um, as I'm sure you well know, there is, is broad sweeping um, prejudice against the Rohingya amongst the um, majority Burma uh, population in Burma. Um, but that being said, I think the primary responsibility um, is, is at the feet of the military and, um, you know, to put a finer point on it, um, at, at the very leader who is now at the head of Burma, um, Min Aung Hlaing, uh, who has actually been sanctioned by the U.S. government for the role that he played in carrying out these atrocities. And of course, he has many cadres in the military who are responsible. And that's why at Heritage, we advocate for um, targeting individuals and entities inside the Burmese military for the role that they played in carrying out these atrocities and not just stopping there, but actually targeting um, major military owned enterprises, including the conglomerates, um, MEC and MEHL. And of course we saw the Biden administration um, doing a lot of that, but actually stopping short of, of sanctioning those major conglomerates, which are where the military derives the vast majority of its funding. Is, is there now a growing concern inside Burma uh, regarding the military control of the government right now, the coup that happened? I mean, this has got to be a human rights crisis in the waiting right now. Yeah, I mean, you've seen people taking to the streets in massive numbers, people who are putting their careers in jeopardy, even members of the civilian government and otherwise um, who, are in, who are engaging in this civil disobedience movement. And it's important for folks and capitals all across the globe to be listening to their voices and doing what we can um, to support their voices. Um, but one of the big concerns, especially in the short term is whether or not the Burmese military might carry out atrocities um, against its own people, whether that's the Rohingya that are left behind in the country or other ethnic minorities in Shan or Kachin or Karen states. Um, and then even beyond that, uh, of course, we've seen the military already having shot and killed um, a, a couple of protesters here, uh, even though there's been pretty much a lack of violence. Uh, we do see some violence starting to crop up. And it is reason for concern because right now the military is operating unchecked. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, there are massive numbers of people who are have been taken hostage and are serving as political prisoners. Right. I believe I saw yesterday, it's creeping close to 800 individuals in civil society and government that have been held under house arrest or or taken into custody in some form or other. Right. It, you recently wrote an article 
called How the U.S. Should Respond to the Coup in Burma. In this article, you call for the U.S. government to enact a state emergency under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Uh, tell me about uh, the act and tell me why, in the instance of the Burma coup, it would be either effective or as necessary. Yeah, so we actually saw the Biden administration going ahead and invoking um, IEPA, which we'll call it colloquially right. since it's such a long name. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but IEPA is is the powers that are invoked in order to be able to create a broader sanctions program toward a country. It gives Treasury that authority to use broad sweeping economic powers and the types of sanctions that you can use these days are not your grandfather's sanctions. They're not necessarily broad trade-based, um, you know, Cuban embargo style of sanctions. They're a lot more targeted in nature. And so um, it's been really encouraging to see the Biden administration issuing some targeted sanctions um, against Minong Lang and other um, military officials, as well as some subsidiaries of, I think it was MEC, um, but they've still stopped short of those conglomerates. And so I think that um, it remains to be seen whether or not the Biden administration will be willing to go the full mile in order to institute sanctions um, against uh, the country and in response to the coup. But I want to be really clear here. I think right. sanctions are a great first step. Um, and the Biden administration took a second step by reevaluating aid and actually redirecting um humanitarian aid that was going toward the government now towards the people great move but sanctions do not a policy make you have right. to have additional uh things in your arsenal and so i think some of those um could be things like actually calling a spade a spade and saying genocide and crimes against humanity were committed by the burmese military against the rohingya in august 2017 um as a precautionary measure that hey look we're watching well, let me, let me jump if you in. do this again there's consequences let, let, let me jump in on that because you you bring up the question is you know if we do bring up the you know the point in the court of public opinion in, in the international community and saying, hey, look, this was a genocide. We're calling it what it was. Mm -hmm. The Burmese government perpetrated genocide against the Rohingya. Are we not somehow culpable in, I mean, are, are we, is there not, a, I guess, a hypocrisy in us calling that out while we pretty much propped up Aung Suu Kyi up on this pedestal as being this great humanitarian? Well, I think since the military was principally responsible for carrying out the atrocities, that the responsibility really does lie with them. Okay. I think what's so unfortunate is that, you know, the atrocity determination should have been issued under the Trump administration. They had evidence for it. They commissioned a report uh, by a, a group with vast expertise in, in transitional justice issues uh, called uh, PILPG. Right. And State Department had this evidence shortly after the 2017 um, events that resulted in the deaths of 10,000 Rohingya and the displacement of over a million in Bangladesh. Um, and so I think that's the real travesty here is that there wasn't a swift response to this at all. Well, um, and so I, I think there's a need for the Biden administration to go ahead and do that. 
Is there any indication why or any research that you've found why the Trump administration held back that designation during their four years? Um, there were some really sort of ridiculous claims out there um, that said that because Politico leaked that they might be making a decision, they decided not to make the decision. That sounds absurd to me. <laughs> um, I, I also I also heard, um, you know, that some people said, well, it already happened. No need to label it, which is ridiculous because, I mean, of course, we've labeled past atrocities when they took place. And we saw the Trump administration even issuing an atrocity determination for Uyghurs. That was something I had advocated for at Heritage and many others around Washington had advocated for too. So it looks really, I think it looks really bad to have the atrocity determination for Uyghurs and not similarly take action um, in the face of, of different but similar horrific atrocities that were were carried out by the Burmese military. And they shouldn't get a free pass there. And I think that, you know, people say, oh, well, what happens if you issue an atrocity determination? Is anything going to happen in response? And the answer is, well, usually, historically, when we look at past atrocity determinations, there has been follow-on action. And one simple one would be to extend priority to refugee status to Rohingyas, Rohingya that they might know that they have safe haven here in the U.S. Um, you know, when they're looking for places to resettle uh, after yeah. all that they've endured. Okay. So... When in your article, also you call for the monitoring and reevaluating of the humanitarian assistance, as we talked a little bit about. But uh, but you also call out uh, improvement of matters that relate to democracy. Uh, mm. One would say that is, I mean, is democracy the right term? We've seen it work. We've seen it not work. In this instance, with the military taking over. One would question its effectiveness there. How do we uh, improve the matters that relate to democracy in what was already considered a democracy in Southeast Asia? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, as you, as you mentioned, you know, Burma was viewed as this bright spot. Right. Um, it was viewed as a, a potential country where we were going to see major reforms, especially when Aung San Suu Kyi was elected. And that's why you saw the Obama administration rolling back a lot of the sanctions that they had against the Burmese military and arguably rolling back those sanctions, uh, which had impeded the military's ability, ability to act, kind of put on San Suu Kyi on her, on her uh, sort of set her out on the wrong foot um, to start off her administration because we lifted the pressure that might have kept the military at bay. I think when it comes to revisiting assistance, um, here, here's one principle maybe to, to bear in mind. So we already saw the Biden administration, um, you know, switching its assistance away from the government and now towards the civilian population. But the types of efforts that need to be supported are things like um, the National Endowment for Democracy that doesn't right. go in and just put in Western style forms of democratic change. It actually provides funding to grassroots local organizations and entities that are saying, this is what we want in terms of our political reforms. This is what we hope to see in our country. And I think what the best way to use U.S. assistance at this particular moment 
is to support the will of the Burmese people when their military government is not. Um, and so I think that's how we can do it moving forward. The um, let's, let's talk about the, the, the current state of uh, Burma and the Burmese government. Um, I did not know that this was illegal in Burma. The uh, an illegal walkie-talkie will get you three years in prison. Apparently, in Burma, this is <laughs> charged that Aung Su that Aung San Suu Kyi was charged with. Um, and there's also been a a complete cutoff of social media and telecommunications into and out of Burma, particularly mm. the capital. Um, number one question for you is, does the international community, whether it's, uh, our, you know, our government, the UN, uh, or NGOs, is there any indication of the health and well-being and safety of the civilian government, including President Suzuki? You know, I feel like a lot more attention has been directed toward the first issue that you raised, which is that of like the telecommunications being cut off and the fact that, I mean, there was literally like an almost 24 hour period where there was no internet. And now the Burmese military just continues to turn it on and off um, at whim. That's really concerning from an organizational standpoint, from a civil disobedience organization standpoint. Um, and I think that, you know, they know that they can do that. And this is the type of world that we're facing where we recognize that new and emerging forms of technology, yes, can be used to promote um, democracy and to widen the space for the promotion of free expression um, and freedom more generally. But it can also be repurposed in really brutal ways um, by authoritarian regimes. Of course, we see this in China with how they carry out and, and apply surveillance technology against the Uyghurs. And now there's, you know, right. 1.83 million in political prison camps. What if the Burmese military does the same with surveillance technology against its own citizens um, during this time? We already see how they're using um how they're using this in in the internet context. So it's very concerning developments. Right. Does does President Biden and the U.S. government have any sort of uh, street credibility with the Burmese military in order to come to a sensible solution to the current crisis? You know, I guess we don't know. It's very early on in the Biden administration. And I think that there may be a reticence to see a full reversal um, back to the stronger sanctions policies that the Obama administration unwound because some of the same people who were in the Obama administration um, then are now in the Biden administration. But I think that, you know, I think that the Biden administration has said that they will put human rights at the center, that they want to promote democracy through their foreign policy. And so I think that there will be competing influences within the administration that will be vying for um, the tone setting in terms of the response. I think right now we've seen good first steps um, in terms of their response, but figuring out the longevity and the long-term objectives of U.S. policy toward Burma, I think is going to require a comprehensive uh, overhaul. And maybe the coup was the, uh, the instigator that they needed in order to do what should have been done a long time ago. 
so with with that being the case, let's talk a little bit about what the future holds for Burma in this uncertainty. Um, Olivia, we've seen a, an economy that was rattled by the pandemic uh, and certain pockets of social unrest. Now with this coup, is I've I, I've seen reports of some being concerned about the economic, not just the stability, but the viability, short and long term, of the Burmese economy. Uh, is there a legitimate financial economic crisis brewing in Burma that uh, could could be a fuse to worse things happening? I think it kind of depends on how calibrated the response is. Like I said before, when it comes to the types of sanctions that are being instituted, they're not um, they're not broad based trade sanctions. And so the impact on specific sectors of the economy may be very significant. Like you saw the first tranche of sanctions was targeted, I think, towards gems and maybe rubies. I think it was rubies and gold, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And so like those sectors may be hurt. Um, But I think that, you know, the Biden administration, as it considers potential sanctions targets, should be thinking about, okay, what are some ways we can hit the Burmese military really strongly, but still preserve space for an ordinary Burmese citizen to be able to operate. And that's why targeted sanctions are so much better. They hold the perpetrator directly accountable and increase their risk to continuing to engage in bad behavior without slamming the rest of the population. So I think there's smarter sanctions these days. So that's my hope. So again, looking forward to what the future holds for the Burmese people in Burma, the the question has always been a, the involvement of international organizations, uh, in particular the UN. Is, is there a larger role that could be beneficial to Burma that the UN could play, or uh, is that just a red herring that that the UN could do more damage than good in the region? Mm, well, I think that the UN, um, you know, has some specific roles that it plays really well. Um, one is sort of monitoring and evaluation and raising awareness around issues. Um, so the fact that the UN, you know, did issue their report saying that they believe that genocide and crimes against humanity had been carried out against Rohingya. It really did raise the profile of the issue significantly. And so, um, you know, hopefully there will be individuals, um, you know, and and maybe commissions at the U.N. that will continue to do monitoring um, to see how civil and political liberties are being harmed in this interim time during the coup, um, which allegedly is only going to last for a year. We'll see whether how long that actually before you go on olivia let me just jump in and ask this question then um is it a smart move to let the u.s and its allies in the region i.e uh japan we would even look at other states such as uh 
Thailand and other Southeast Asian nations, is it better for the U.S. to kind of lead a coalition in helping resolve the situation? Or is there a benefit for the U.N. to do what they've done before, you know, put in the U.N. High Commission for Refugees to answer the question surrounding the Rohingya, uh, look at uh, a peacekeeping force to maintain peace in the capital and keep a military junta from taking over. What is the right balance here, or is there a right answer here? Yeah, well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of actors in the region worth considering. I know Human Rights Watch put out actually yesterday a call um, on the Japanese government to do more to hold the Burmese military accountable because uh, Japan has a lot of investments in Burma. And so I think that there are actors in the region that the U.S. could really um, sort of build a coalition to come together and, and to respond with strength um, in defense of, of freedoms and human rights and, and values in the region, um, even as a broader part of the, the promotion of a free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, and so I think that that is a very good idea. Um, but I think at the end of the day, all of these countries are looking to the U.S. for leadership. One other, you know, um, like range of countries that perhaps some people might look to to respond is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which Burma uh, is a part of. Right. Um, but ASEAN is has their principle of non-interference in internal affairs. And so many of the countries um, have been sort of reticent to respond. Um, even in the face of the Rohingya crisis, but uh, also given the coup. And so I think we need to watch closely to see how they respond as well, because neighbors in the region could possibly be emboldened if you don't see a strong response from the U.S. Um, and a strong condemnation uh, from other countries around the globe, even beyond the Asian region. Okay. Uh, one last question, Olivia, before we let you go. Uh, is democracy a reality in Burma and will we see it again? Oh man, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> I was going to let you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had my, I had my high hopes, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think I, I always think that transitions and major reforms rest on the shoulders of the people of that country. And I think that it will depend largely on, one, the Burmese people's voices being heard and being amplified um, by the U.S. and other actors in the region. Um, and I think that a huge part of that, uh, a way to sort of um, shift the balance of power is to increase risk to the military to continuing to engage in these behaviors. And so, you know, Burma has had various periods of ups and downs of military leadership and then uh, turns toward democracy. So I, I don't think it's out. It's not, you know, it's not not in the cards um, for them to potentially have a restoration and a return to to a more freedom loving state. But I think Right now, it's in dire straits. And so people all across the globe are going to have to make careful considerations and careful calibrations of policy to see whether or not we can get Burma back on the right track. Very good. Livianos from Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'd love to have you back again to talk about other issues in Southeast Asia. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Justin. This is really great. Not a problem.
For more information on the subject you just heard about, or any of our articles, reports, or events, log on to nycfpa.org. Also, please consider subscribing to Message Traffic on your favorite podcast service like Apple, Google, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. You can also follow us on social media by searching for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For questions regarding the center, or just to let us know what you were thinking, you can email us at info at nycfpa.org. On behalf of the board and staff of the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs, thank you for listening.